This is Patrick Henningsen, and you're listening to On the QT at 21wire.tv. Accessing confidential data. Welcome, welcome everybody to the uh, first edition of On the QT at 21wire.tv. I'm Patrick Henningsen from 21st Century Wire, and uh, we're streaming out uh, on a number of platforms, uh, including uh, iTunes and ACR as well, the Alternate Current Radio Network. And this first segment uh, will be broadcast uh, publicly, uh, but after the 30-minute mark, uh, we're going to exit, and you'll be able to hear the full broadcast at uh, 21wire.tv. There'll be links uh, on the bottom of this show page, uh, as well as links on 21wire.tv. You can listen to the whole show if you are a subscriber of 21wire.tv. Uh, so if you're a member or a subscriber, uh, you'll be able to access this. And this is a new fortnightly podcast, uh, which we're producing. And uh, what what we're hoping to do and what we've tried to arrange here is uh, it's a, it's midweek uh, broadcasting, although this one we're putting out uh, today uh, just after the uh, historic vote, uh, the EU referendum vote in the UK. Uh, so the British public uh, voted to leave. So I thought we'd uh, record the first episode after we got the result of that because it is quite a significant event in terms of uh, politics uh, in Europe and, and even it will reverberate globally uh, in different ways. And we'll break that down uh, a little bit on this podcast. And this will be different than the Sunday Wire, as, as you guys know who listen to the Sunday Wire at 21st Century Wire and ACR and also here at iTunes. Uh, you'll know that's a three-hour omnibus radio program. And we normally that runs out live for three hours on Sundays at uh, 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and uh, from 9 a.m. to 12 Pacific in the U.K., uh, 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. London Time. And uh, as an omnibus program, uh, really try to cover as much as we can. But normally what we find is that the, the majority of the news cycle, uh, it just changes so rapidly now. So really what the Sunday Wire ends up really focusing on what happened uh, on uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday of that week. And that's sort of the main focus. There's like almost, there's almost two to three news cycles each week now. Whereas normally in the past it might have been a weekly news cycle and you could always get the roundup on Sunday. But now there's almost like cycles within cycles, wheels within wheels. and now, so this program hopefully will address some of the, the early week stories that uh, are marinating, percolating Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, although this will be a fortnightly uh, transmission initially. So we're just working out uh, some production issues and uh, uh, workflow for a number of things that we're producing now. We're working on a new television program as well, uh, which we'll be unveiling for, for members at 21wire.tv. It's called Insight. And I think we're going to have the whole episode uh, up on 21wire.tv for members and subscribers only. This will be a one-hour episode of Battle for Eurasia. Uh, we've got a couple of great guests 
for that. To learn more about that, go check it out uh, on our website. And uh, for more information and, and, and to watch it, uh, you'll be able to hopefully get a membership to 21wire.tv to see the whole program. Eventually, we will release that publicly, but uh, members will get the first crack at that show. Uh, we've recorded two other episodes, and uh, we'll hopefully have uh, four, five, six uh, also recorded in the next few weeks, and those will be released every two weeks uh, uh, here at 21wire.tv. And we did that production in conjunction with uh, UK Column TV in Britain, and the results are pretty good so far. So we're looking forward to unveiling that. But this is on the QT. So if you've listened to Pulp Fiction or you've seen any of those films on the QT, on the quiet, for members only, uh, that's the idea behind this production. So uh, we'll hopefully be able to share what we're working on. You know, for instance, uh, I'll be working on some written pieces um, during the course of any given week or month and some maybe sort of in-depth analysis on some big topics and you know, on this show, we'll be sharing you some of my insights and my thinking of where things are going, uh, where things are likely to go, what's happening. Some of the discuss some of the moving parts. Uh, we may we may have guests. Uh, in fact, most likely we will have guests on this podcast. But for the moment, uh, it's going to be just a single cast uh, with some uh, clips. Will also be mixed in here. So that's something that we'll have maybe in subsequent episodes. So let's let's just start this week. Uh, so this is, well, what week are we in right now? I think June, June, uh, June 24th, June 25th, this weekend. So this show will overlap slightly with uh, the Sunday show, but normally this is kind of probably going to go out on Tuesday evening. Uh, so it's something to look out for then. Uh, but let's take a look at the news. Uh, so we woke up today. The whole country of Britain and Europe, for that matter, and maybe the financial markets as well, all waiting with bated breath. What will be the result of the Brexit vote in the UK? And it came back. A result was 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 turned in this morning, and the figures were released. Uh, I had uh, Basil Valentine calling me at 1 a.m. Uh, excited uh, about the Leave vote. I didn't see the call though. I saw the message when I woke up. So 51.7%, I believe, uh, in favor of leaving the EU in Britain, and uh, 48.3 or something like this uh, in favor of remaining. So that's a difference of about 1.4 million votes in the total electorate. This is a pretty, it's a pretty tight race, any way you cut it, but there's still you know, almost a million and a half differences in votes. 72% turnout for voters, not bad. Uh, eligible voters, that is. So not not 72% of the population, but still very high voter turnout. I think we're over 30 million. So if you think about that, so over half the uh, population of Great Britain, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. If you compare that to uh, uh, comparable numbers in some, somewhere like the United States, uh, what they actually get for election turnouts, it's, it's abysmally low in terms of the percentage of uh, eligible voters. So big turnout, big issue. Uh, this issue has really divided the country, although not as bad maybe as one might have thought uh, compared to past issues uh, in past decades. Uh, but certainly people are passionate uh, on both sides of this issue. And uh, there, we pointed out at, uh, at 21st Century Wire there's been a, a huge fear campaign. And, and I've checked out quite a few of the claims 
from the well from the prime minister's office uh, down to some people running campaigns for uh, remain in the EU in Britain, and some of them are just kind of really irrational claims, uh, like they're you know Britain wouldn't be able to uh, uh, sell its products uh, in Europe, and uh, anybody who's an EU migrant worker resident in the UK is going to have to leave. None of these are true. Okay, and also that the uh, George Soros uh, delivered a veiled threat on Tuesday, I think, of this week. Uh, he penned an article himself, which is an amazing uh, himself, George Soros in The Guardian, warning that a Brexit vote, in other words, a vote uh, to leave the EU by the British people, would result in a freefall of sterling or the pound. So the currency would go, would plummet, and uh, this would mean an economic uh, downturn, a disaster for Britain. So the fact that George Soros himself is issuing veiled threats, and, and he would know a thing or two about uh, threatening to uh, attack a country's currency, of co- course, because he's done it before. Uh, the fact that George Soros is pushing people in that direction should get people to think about mm, maybe who's behind this uh who's going to benefit, and I assure you, whether the country remains or stays, uh, George Soros would have hedged his bets accordingly, and he'll make his money either way. Okay, but what it does tell you is that uh, George Soros is an operator. He's been deployed by the real money, and not to say that he's not wealthy and powerful. Yes, he is, but uh, he's a billionaire, but he's been deployed by the trillionaires. He's an operator who gets things done. That's his job. Uh, he controls some very key choke points uh, in media and in finance and also in politics. And so that's George Soros, the uh, living incarnation of Goldfinger, uh, is essentially the best way I can describe this guy. And uh, if any, if I could, if I was to bet, if anybody's going to live to 120, it's probably going to be him. He's probably had full uh, stem cell uh, replacement therapy. Uh, he'll. That guy will be around forever, maybe. He's uh, he's a busy boy. So Soros is saying, get out. So uh, uh, Or saying, stay in, uh, or the currency's going to implode. So let's look at what else. Uh, a lot of the mainstream reports, it's pretty split. A lot of fear-mongering from certain newspapers in the U.K., including the Daily Mirror, uh, that's uh, had a picture of a big black hole or a well or something on its front page last night and saying... Um, don't get lost, uh, don't end up in the abyss, um, vote, uh, remain. And they said, you'll lose your jobs, your pension, you'll lose the NHS, your lives, your children. This is what it said on the front cover of the mirror last night. So how are you supposed to take that seriously? I don't know. But uh, British politics in post-Brexit turmoil after vote leave from the EU. This is uh, front page of one tabloid. So David Cameron resigned immediately this morning. Well, not quite. Uh, Resigning means that Cameron's going to be sticking around till October. So uh, he's not. He announced his resignation, but uh, he said uh, we'll probably try to have a a replacement prime minister in place uh, before the Conservative Party conference in October. So the bottom line, ladies and gentlemen, is that you have a lame duck prime minister who's going to basically appoint an unelected prime minister, uh, this is not a good scene. 
And believe you me, uh, David Cameron can do a lot of damage between now and October. He's called for stability and to steady the ship until the transition is complete. Uh, a period of stability, he calls it. But in political language, when a politician says a period of stability, what they really mean is instability. So always look for the opposite. Uh, so we'll see what happens. I predict, um, and I don't take any joy in this prediction, but uh, based on the fact that we're already seeing noises, in, in some ways you could say this is engineered, okay? They knew that it was going to be a, 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 um, a leave vote, okay? And it's triggered calls from Netherlands, France, Italy. They also want to exit. And Greece, uh, well, that's always been on the cards. And there's probably a few others in the wings. I'm sure Spain wouldn't mind uh, uh, mulling over that possibility. But basically, especially some of these countries that are in Southern Europe anyway, that are struggling economically, uh, either because of the EU's lunatic um, sanctions policy against Russia, which is based on nothing, uh, a lot of Italian businesses are suffering, uh, Spanish businesses, anybody who's in the agricultural uh, or citrus markets, uh, they lost access to the Russian market. And German businesses are suffering as well because Germany's been a big trading partner with Russia. And I'm sure the Dutch are suffering a little bit as well. And this is all basically uh, EU foreign policy, which is Washington's proxy foreign policy as well. So it's uh, stick it to Russia and suffer in the meantime. So they're all saying, well, let's have a referendum as well. So potentially you set, you have a what I called a few weeks ago on the Sunday Wire, a populist brush fire that this vote could ignite. The vote in itself doesn't mean a whole lot in Britain because uh, A, it's not a, it's not a legally binding referendum. Uh, it's an indication of the public will on this issue. But this government could basically drag its heels, engineer a few crises, and then call for a uh, 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 another vote in in a similar way that they did in Ireland uh, when the Irish voted out and then they had another referendum and they had time to get all their ducks in a row and then they voted in so Ireland stayed even though they voted out. This could happen in Britain too, but it would take a crisis to trigger that event. What is that crisis going to be? That's what worries me. That's what should worry everybody else. Uh, so we'll see. Uh, but Boris Johnson will be the heir apparent in October, most likely. Uh, this is, was also said by Mike Robinson from the UK column and myself uh, a week ago or two weeks ago. This is what we said would happen, and this is exactly what's happened. So why? And back to my concerns, okay? With all these other European countries, you have the potential of Europe coming apart at the seams politically, Economically, it's not going to come apart at the seams. It, are, it, it already has economically. Y Europe is in free fall economically. You have the rich north and the poor south. The poor south is being subsidized by the rich north. But what they're not really being subsidized. The rich north is, is merely lending them money to cover the interest from past loans, which is the case in Greece. Okay, It's a Ponzi scheme. Greece is getting taken to the cleaners by Wall Street, by the European Central Bank, uh, by, the, the, by the, the lords and the masters of the paper universe uh, known as the City of London or, or Wall Street. So all the junk bonds and junk debt, which they dumped on Greece years ago, uh, came back to destroy 
and gut its uh, economy, and then they're coming back with aid packages, which means more debt, more interest, and so forth. So a vicious cycle Greece can never get out of. And this is dangerous. What you could see in Europe is a summer of tension. This could be the Gladio summer. And uh, in the second part of this uh, broadcast, I'll, I'll detail what the big agenda is. And we've been studying the situation with Europe, what the Brexit vote means, and looking at some of the telltale signs and studying some of the reports coming out, piecing it together, how this relates to Britain, Europe, to Turkey, and Syria. And we have a sort of a working model of the dynamic. And uh, it's a lot different than most people think. I'll break that down in detail in part two. And some people will be surprised by this, and some people will be a little bit shocked. Some people, a little light bulb will go off, and they say, actually, yes, he's correct on that. <laughs> so we'll see we'll see how that pans out. But So this is what's dominating European news right now. Uh, uh, G- Germany certainly wanted Britain to remain. Uh, that was absolutely the wishes of Angela Merkel. She made it known publicly. Um, and then within the, U- within the, the U.K., the United Kingdom, which comprises of the following countries, England, Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland. Within the United Kingdom, you have potential problems here. Uh, One of them is Scotland had a referendum for independence from the United Kingdom not so long ago. And... uh, when that vote was run last year, uh, there was a huge fear campaign. Oh, you mustn't vote leave. Uh, you must vote stay. And so they voted stay, but it transformed Scottish politics and turned it into a one-party state. Um, and I might add a one-party police state. If you look at some of the policies being rolled out north of the border in Scotland, uh, they are Orwellian uh, in the extreme. So what does Scotland really want? Uh, we're not sure, but what we do know is Scotland's already making noises uh, because the British vote to leave the EU, Scot- Scotland's making noises about a second independence referendum. The idea behind this is they would get a yes vote on breaking away from the UK uh, in order that Scotland could individually go and join Brussels as part of the European Union. So they see that as their lifeline to the EU. And so you have other talk similar to this in in Northern Ireland as well right now as a result of this vote, this UK vote. Now, both Scotland and Northern Ireland both voted a pretty substantial majority to remain in the EU. So the big dissent came from England and uh, I think a little bit from Wales as well. Uh, So the United Kingdom is, is it's a close vote, but it's split. As well, you could say there are major differences of opinions here uh, on both sides. Uh, So this is interesting. So there's there's two dynamics here. There's the United Kingdom and there's the EU. So we will be watching this closely, and uh, probably the best coverage on this topic you're going to get is probably at the UK column, which uh, does a live uh, TV news show Monday to Friday, uh, and that will be at 1 p.m. to 2 p.m. UK time on ukcolumn.org, and uh, I might be also uh, guest hosting uh, alongside either uh, Brian Garish or Mike Robinson um, in the coming week on that program, as I did a couple of weeks ago, 
when we did a few a few episodes. So they're going to break that down for you uh, better than anybody. And they were right about the result. Uh, Mike Robinson said that on the air, I think, at least twice, um, well before the event. And it played out identically to what he predicted. So they do know what they're talking about. No other media outlet predicted that accurately, by the way. Not in the mainstream, and I don't even think in the alternative media either. So that's... uh, Good uh, props for uh, the team at the UK column. So Donald Trump uh, also on Brexit. uh, EU breakup is on the cards. People want their borders back, says Donald Trump. So there's this issue of immigration, uh, which has come in, which is an engineered issue. Okay. Uh, This is also part of the strategy, strategy of tension across Europe. And... You know, what's interesting is uh, the, the British will often blame the immigrants uh, or people blame the immigrants, but they so rarely blame the system which allows the free flow of immigrants or the system or the people or nations that caused the crisis to begin in the first place. In other words, who are funding and arming jihadists in Syria, destabilizing that country and forcing and creating the migrant crisis, okay? But it's worse than that. A British person can't go and interlope in France just across the channel and then collect any benefits they want, uh, uh, get their rent paid by the government, uh, get income support, basically go on the dole. Can't be done. It's difficult. The French don't make it easy. They don't even make it easy for the French. However, if someone arrives on British shores, uh, it's carte blanche for some reason. It's very easy, and this creates the incentive for mass migration. If it's known that it's not easy to get uh, state funding here or to get your house paid or a brand new flat and you know extra allowance for the kids and you know maybe a few thousand pounds a month from the government, if it's, if it's known that that's not an easy thing to get, you would see immigration slow down, and those people would divert and go somewhere else, perhaps Germany uh, or Scandinavia or Denmark or some place with a very uh, generous uh, social safety net system. So this is what it is. You remove the incentive. Uh, you, you remove the problem, essentially. This is why they pass through France to get to Britain. They don't stay in France. So... This is, a, this is an issue. There's a language issue as well. Everybody wants to come here uh, to either Britain or the U.S. Uh, also because of the English language. Uh, and that's seen as a very marketable language. If you've got children in education, uh, it is the second language of the world and fast becoming the first language of the world. So this is a big incentive for people to uh, also immigrate. So there's a cultural, uh, there's opportunity, economic reasons as well. And the language is a big part of that. Uh, I don't care what anybody says. That's a big factor. Uh, if people have kids with them or if they're young and they're getting into the business world or getting started on the career ladder. So uh, there's no two ways about that's a huge issue. So we'll uh, we'll break down how does this relate to Syria? How does this relate to Turkey? How does the EU situation relate? What will the summer of tension be like? Will this be the summer of Gladio? is the big question. We'll touch on that and other points in the second part of this program. Uh, This is on the QT at 21 Wire.
21wire.tv. And stay right there and do go to 21wire.tv for the full episode and to hear part two. Uh, We'll see you on the other side. Tune in Sundays at noon Eastern Time or 9 a.m. Pacific Time for the Sunday Wire for three hours of action-packed talk radio on 21stCenturyWire.com and AlternateCurrentRadio.com. This is Patrick Henningsen, and you're listening to On the QT at 21wire.tv. Accessing confidential data. This is On the QT at 21wire.tv. Thank you for joining us uh, for part two of this program. This is going to be a fortnightly uh, uh, radio program and also a podcast, uh, and this is part two. This is for going to be available initially anyway uh, for members only, uh, at least for uh, the f- next few weeks. Uh, part two of this particular program will keep each of these uh, on ice until all of our members have had a chance to access and to listen to them. And then we may be releasing uh, some clips of these on SoundCloud uh, at 21st Century Wire, 21 Wire's SoundCloud account. Uh, we'll release the second part of this podcast. But right now, if you're listening to this, uh, you are a 21wire.tv member. And uh, I want to say a big thank you out to everybody who has supported us uh, in this journey. Uh, and this is one of the things that we'll be producing for you. Uh, in the coming months. So this will be this special report. So we originally wanted to do a kind of situation report uh, for a number of breaking stories and just to go into a little more depth midweek about some of the stuff that's been happening on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Now, this this episode you're listening now, you might be accessing this on the weekends. This is going to be a slightly off schedule, but normally we're going to release this on Tuesday evening. Or Tuesday afternoon, uh, if you're in Europe, and uh, Tuesday evening, I believe, if you are in uh, the United States or in the Western Hemisphere. So, where are we right now? Well, we talked before the uh, break in part one about Brexit and the implications of this. There's there are many. This is a kind of a chess game or a shell game, and uh, I, I'm of the firm belief this was all these outcomes and results have been engineered well in advance. And so what you're seeing is kind of a stage play. And it's playing out a certain way. However, public opinion uh, can move and shift according to information which is introduced into the mix. That's one of the roles that we are trying to play and hope to play, uh, to be a positive uh, source of good uh, analysis. Uh, And we're getting our information from many times the same place you are. 
uh, and we're also producing some new information, but most of the stuff we get, we, we have to troll through various media outlets to get it. And then we try to distill it, understand it, and then come back to you with some commentary and analysis. And that's what this show uh, aims to do. And uh, what else we do at the 21st Century Wire's weekly omnibus live radio program, uh, the Sunday Wire, which broadcasts live on the Alternate Current Radio Network on Sundays, which I'm sure a lot of you listen to if you're a member. But uh, we have different... uh, some different people out there from different parts of the world, and I would say hello to everybody. We might actually do that one one day, uh, maybe in the next couple of episodes. We'll say hello to everybody, all of our members, uh, one by one, <laughs> on this uh, on this side of the broadcast. So, where are we? No, let's let's look quickly though. There's a couple of the stories that uh, that are hitting the headlines, uh, which I just want to run down and make some quick commentary on. This one caught my eyes. We, we might actually do a feature on this uh, in the next couple of days. We'll definitely be talking about it this Sunday uh, on the program. But Scientology's propaganda machine, Tom Cruise, I hope you're sitting down. And if you are, you might want to grab a drink right now. Tom Cruise launches a 24-hour news network to reach every person on Earth. This is the Scientology 24-7 News Network channel. Yes, you heard that correctly. And yes, there will be celebrities on it. And yes, it is launched by Tom Cruise. Scientology TV 24-7 globally to reach every person on Earth, even in the most remote Inuit Eskimo tribes uh, in the North Pole. Tom Cruise has his eye on you too. So there's nowhere you can hide. If you're at the South Pole at the uh, NOAA Research uh, International Center, Tom Cruise wants to reach you there with the Scientology Channel. If you're, if you're listening to this podcast and you're up in the International Space Station, Tom Cruise wants to access you as well. So he's really got everybody on his radar with his new Scientology Channel. So what is this, like, kind of like the CNN of Scientology? Yeah. Now, there's a potential, now I'm not bigging up Scientology here, but uh, some Scientologists are very switched on. Uh, They know what's going on. Uh, So (laughs) you'll probably get some very interesting stuff, uh, no doubt, on this TV channel. But I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Actors and news, how can you tell what's real? Well, you can't. This is a problem. We'll keep an eye on that story. Look for an article at 21st Century Wire probably in the next couple of days. The heroin epidemic. U.S. users at a 20-year high have talked about this before uh, a few times. You know, if you say one good thing about the Taliban, they really stomped out poppy production in Afghanistan. And then something happened. Uh, it's called 9-11 on September 11th, 2001. And ever since 9-11, ever since the U.S. and NATO uh, began attacking, uh, occupying uh, the country of Afghanistan, poppy production, for some strange reason, I just can't figure out why for the life of me, but it's been steadily climbing year after year after year. And you know what happens when production climbs, price goes down on the street because you have an oversupply of the product. So if price goes down, what does that mean if you're living in uh, uh, any community? It can be a rural community. It doesn't matter where you are. 
There's no sanctuary from this scourge. Uh, you get tons and tons and loads of junkies and people addicted to cheap heroin, potent, strong, low-cost heroin. Okay, you get people dying of over- overdoses because they're, they're being sold uh, tainted drugs as well. Listen, it's a bad scene. You know, they nearly got rid of heroin in the 90s. It became so expensive. It got so out of fashion. And a lot of this, the uh, the smackheads migrated into uh, other pursuits like, uh, you know, raving and ecstasy and, and fetam- other MDMA and phetamines-based narcotics and uh, generally exhibiting more creative and positive behavior. But all of a sudden heroin came back and Hollywood in the music industry has done its role in promoting heroin either through film or the heroin chic look or the the fashion industry with the uh, bulimic and anorexic models with uh, big dark circles under their eyes making that look uh, very trendy and who knows there might be a few of them on the catwalk that are actually addicted to the stuff but a lot of it is just starving themselves for the catwalk but heroin back in style, this is not a positive development, uh, and this is directly correlated to uh, uh, U.S. and U.K. and NATO foreign policy, direct correlation. In fact, it won't be long, mark our words, you'll start seeing poppy production increase on European soil, and then you have a very healthy, nice, buoyant, domestic heroin industry. Just wait. That's what we have coming. Okay, so where else have we got here? Uh, U.S. Supreme Court declines to hear challenges to the assault weapon ban uh, in two states. There was a filibuster following the uh, dramatic Orlando nightclub shooting, or I don't know who was doing the shooting, but that's another story we can discuss later. Uh, If you want the answers to that, go to 21stCenturyWire.com. And uh, just check in the U.S. uh, news section. Sean Helton wrote a great article breaking down the 9-11 transcripts, or in other words, the 911 call, uh, allegedly made by the shooter. They won't release the audio. They released transcripts, and they they redacted them as well as parts of them anyway. This is the 911 call where he, uh, the shooter, allegedly uh, called and pledged his allegiance to uh, al Baghdadi. Uh, while he was uh, doing the heist or the hostage or the the mass murder or whatever. Anyway, they won't show everything because it's, uh, I don't know, they say it's dangerous to to show it to the public. So let's look at this for a minute. So now, within days, uh, there's a huge filibuster effort in Congress to, uh, to to get some gun control measures passed. It's mainly a partisan effort. Uh, call it reactionary, but what is it reacting to? So this this story was a hate crime. It was a gun crime. Now we find out that the shooter was gay, or this is the, what's coming out anyway, so that cancels out the hate crime uh, narrative. And then you find out that uh, we look in the police report, and there's very little said by the police about the so-called shooter shooting 50 people inside the nightclub. So who, if, the, if 50 people really did die... Uh, who who would have shot them? Not not Omar Mateen, this the alleged uh, dead gunman. No, it would have been the police. And we played that video two weeks ago, on live on air, uh, on the UK Columns news program. 
and how many rounds did we count off in, in, a, in a space of a few seconds, maybe 300 or something rounds fired. And uh, you just wonder if that, was, if that was real, if that really happened, how many punters would have been killed with that much of a barrage of gunfire by who knows how many dozens, if not hundred law enforcement officers all willing to, waiting to get rounds off. How many? How many? So how many people did the police kill? I don't know. But uh, it's a very shady event. It's a very shady event. Uh, lack of a convincing story here. There's a lot of aspects of it that appear fake. Uh, the fact they let Univision Television, this is a big Latin American broadcast TV, uh, heavily aligned in America with the uh, Democratic Party, with the current White House, and with CNN, funny enough. Um, Univision was allowed to ransack the shooter's house, picking up IDs that were just conveniently left around on the counters, gun licenses. As If this was a real terrorist event, which law enforcement came out in their uh, – media rituals, uh, the press conferences uh, in the immediate aftermath last week of this so-called mass shooting. And maybe I heard wrong, but they said it was a terrorist investigation. So if it's a terrorist investigation, you'd think that the the gunman's house would be kind of locked down and uh, any IDs or gun licenses or personal effects would be in evidence bags and would be taken off and put in an evidence locker and uh, part of the investigation. Because after all, if it's a terrorist investigation, that's, a, I guess, a federal investigation. I guess it has so-called national security implications, so wouldn't that all be evidence? Wouldn't that crime scene be roped off? But no. No, Univision was allowed only days after to go in there and rifle through the alleged shooter's belongings makes for good television but this isn't the first time it happened it happened in san bernardino last december that was a, a freak uh, circus uh, a media free-for-all we had multiple networks and members of the public just walking into the uh, uh farouk the alleged shooter of uh, san bernardino fame and uh, his wife tafshin malik going into their house in uh in in the redlands i believe and just basically having a field day, uh, cameras and everything, picking up stuff. Who knows, maybe taking souvenirs away. Uh, if this was a real crime scene, ladies and gentlemen, if it was a real terrorist event, that w- they wouldn't be able to do that. So the fact that they are able to do that is more or less confirmation, in my view anyway, and probably anybody who shares uh, any sort of capacity for common sense. Uh, the fact that the media is allowed to do that means that those are not real crime scenes, you see. Kind of simple, right? So, but not simple enough for your average CNN viewer or Univision viewer. Uh, they need it even more simple than that. So I'll break it down even more simply. Uh, if if you did anything like that and it was real, you know, the press would not be able to go and sit on your sofa and have a cup of tea in your kitchen 48 hours after the event, okay? Just kind of get that through your head and get your head around that. So if you're watching it on TV, there's a really good chance that <laughs> for some reason, and this is a question that we're going to have to put towards media and authorities who are there, why are you doing this? Is it because it's not a real crime scene? My, my guess is the answer to that is yes. It's not a real crime scene. Otherwise, you wouldn't be there. So, again, another shady uh, revelations. Uh, great job from 21st Century Wire and the coverage of this event. 
know a lot of people put stuff out immediately. We usually wait a few days because we gather, we're gathering uh, facts, gathering evidence. We're analyzing it. We are looking at things closely. We're also waiting for pieces to come in. And uh, one thing I did say to uh, one of our researchers, I said that uh, the narrative will change after 48 hours, or sorry, 72 hours. And we found in, we've studied, looked at patterns of mass shootings. And one thing we found is there's always a major pivot in the narrative after 72 hours of almost every one of these. And it'll be a major pivot regarding the shooter or the uh, conditions uh, in which the so-called crime took place. There'll be a major shift, a major pivot. Some new information will be introduced that would change the whole narrative. And we found that's almost happens on every single event. Every, so, so something gets introduced into the mix that changes the narrative altogether, which is, on itself is incredible. But if you look at this, study this, Umqua in Oregon, San Bernardino, this or, uh, Orlando event, uh, and the Chattanooga event as well, uh, although it's more pronounced in Orlando and, uh, and San Bernardino, these seem to be, these were masterpieces. Of, uh, of mass shooting events. I mean, they were put the, the way that these events were put together from the actual event itself to the chase to uh, the law enforcement reaction to the public PR uh, machine that kicks into gear afterwards and then official statements and, and interagency uh, uh, revelations and, and public statements and things like that. It's an absolute masterpiece. And uh, so we found this. The reason this narrative shift always happens at 48 hours or 72 hours is because during that initial window, the uh, say, think of it like the tortoise and the hare. I'll break it down to you real easy. Have you ever raced rabbits before? If you're from the country, you will know what I'm talking about if you grew up in the south or something like that. So you, 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 op- you open the cage and you let the hare out and they just bolt, right? And they take off, okay? And so this is what happens. So think, think of the narrative like the hare in the cage. As soon as they lift the gate, off it goes. And those are the first reports that hit the media. And they're always divisive. They're always politically loaded. In other words, the shooter was an angry Muslim who was homophobic. So you've got two, you got two for one deal there. You've got angry ISIS inspired lone gunmen. So that already ticked some of the best boxes there in American mythology. Lone gunmen, that's top box. Always have to tick that one. Lone gunmen, uh, Muslim terrorist, homophobic. This is a new one. So this got the, rallied the whole international uh, LGBT gay community that this person was attacking gays because Muslims don't like gays, apparently. That was the narrative. That was the hare that raced out of the, uh, out of the cage in the first minutes, the first hours. And uh, so how did they get this narrative? Well, the shooter's father, uh, Sadiq, uh, Omar Mateen's father, Sadiq, he, uh, Sadiq Mateen, I believe his name is, Interesting, very well-connected guy. We talked about this on previous uh, episodes of the Sunday Wire and uh, on also in UK Column News. But he made a comment in the media, and this is key. He, uh, within the immediate aftermath, all of a sudden he appears and says, oh, my son saw two men kissing two weeks before in Miami, and he got upset. And so that, w- that created motive. And that's all the media needed anyway 
forget about the police. We'll put them off to the side for the moment. <laughs> they couldn't establish motive for weeks because if they're doing a real investigation, you can't establish the motive until you've completed the investigation, which they hadn't even started the investigation. So off the hair goes homophobia. So did anyone stop to think that maybe the father has inserted this intentionally into the mix to get that rabbit out of the cage? So who's the father? Connected on the very highest levels in Washington, D.C. Turns out he's running for the president of Afghanistan, uh, somehow connected with the provisional government of Afghanistan, uh, and also has a lot of people have accused, including uh, a good piece which we republished from Daniel Hopsicker on 21st Century Wire. This gentleman, this father of this so-called gunman, uh, most likely a CIA asset, uh, would have very good Mujahideen connections, allied with the Taliban, uh, rubbing up against the Pakistani ISI, uh, and uh, hanging out with uh, Ed Royce and other sort of top congressional committee leaders in Washington, D.C. What are the odds of this? So here he goes. He creates the homophobe, Islamic homophobe narrative. Turns out later we find out, or other stories come to confuse people, that the shooter was gay. And he was a closet uh, homosexual. He was so apparently remarried with kids, but uh, was uh, whoring and touring on the weekends in the nightclubs of uh, Orlando and Miami. We also find out that he was tapped by the FBI by an informant to take part in a sting. Uh, Apparently he didn't take part in that particular sting. Maybe somebody else did. It just gets more interesting than the police have the report which omits his, uh, well, we're still waiting for confirmation on ballistics inside the nightclub that he actually killed 49 people, which based on what we've seen on the last release, that's looking more and more unlikely to happen. So in other words, all these narratives came out in the first few hours. You have this big dramatic sit-in in Congress for gun control. And, but what, what do we really have? We don't have anything. We have confirmation of nothing. We have the, the initial story that came out of the gates. We have very little to back any of it. So this thing has just gone runaway, spun out of control, candlelight vigils everywhere, rainbow flags all over the place. Everyone's sad and, oh, come together in the community. And, and most of it's based on a fiction. That's the reality of the daily shooter. So... <laughs> I don't know what more to say on that score. So, and there's another potential bomber shooter shows up in L.A., stopped by police with explosives in the back. Uh, looks like a professional and on his way to a gay pride uh, a parade. But somehow, so in other words, that one was meant to go live. They shut that one down for some reason. And no one's talking about that. It's not getting a lot of attention in the national news. But the two are absolutely connected in my opinion. No doubt about it at all. So there's a number of other stories I could go through and, uh, you know, I might touch on a couple of them. Let's look at this one, the White House stating the obvious Syrian invasion will not be in America's best interest. However, there's a renewed push by by the White House and by the UK government calling for a more aggressive uh, measures to combat Daesh or whatever in, in ISIS. 
uh, in Syria. So, and also, they need to step up the attack on Assad. This is a number of uh, high-ranking diplomats and persons in Washington, D.C., renewing this call for war against Syria. So they're not happy because uh, it's just the agenda is way behind schedule. They were supposed to have this done and dusted two years ago, three years ago, in fact. And here we are. Uh, they're still dragging on. It's getting messier by the day. So we need a no-fly zone. We need a war. We need more bombing. Assad must go, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I've heard it all before. It's like a broken record, okay? And it's usually bolstered by lies. And uh, <laughs> we can keep debunking them over and over again. And we will keep debunking them over and over again because uh, they need to be debunked. So what else? Uh, quickly, let's look. Uh, America trashes the NATO Founding Act. Well, that's interesting. So this was uh, published by Eric Zeus, who is on this episode, this first episode of Insight, The Battle for Eurasia, uh, which we'll have for our members at 21wire.tv. So Eric's a great analyst, but the NATO Founding Act was agreed between the U.S. and Russia in 1997 in order to provide uh, Russia's leader, Boris Yeltsin, uh, some sort of assurance that America wouldn't invade his country. So when his predecessor, Mikhail Gorbachev, had ended the Soviet Union in, a, in, in its Warsaw Pact alliance back way back in 1991, uh, representative from the U.S. and uh, representing George um, Herbert Walker Bush, that's Bush Sr., uh, had told him NATO would not move one inch to the east towards Russia. But uh, as soon as Gorbachev committed himself uh, to the end of the Cold War and now uh, the le- was the leader uh, not only of Russia, it's no longer the Soviet Union anyway, but the, the Bush agents basically reneged on that promise, okay? Because right now NATO has gone way past that what was previously agreed uh, in good faith. So NATO, which is dominated by Washington, and uh, second tier would be the UK, France, and Holland, uh, they have reneged on that agreement, spirit of it, the letter of it, everything, and have done that intentionally to increase the tension uh, between East and West because at the end of the day, folks, it's a business. Okay, more tension, more arms sales. Simple. More tension, more aircraft carriers, more radar systems, more satellites, more troop deployments, uh, more mechanized brigades, okay? It's a business. But also by trashing the NATO Founding Act, there's another angle to this, which we'll also be covering on one of the Insight productions we'll be recording in the next week or so. And this is, this is about trashing NATO, okay? Trashing NATO to replace it with something else. And that something else most likely will be a European military. And uh, this is still on the, in the works, okay? This will be like an EU defense force uh, or an EU. You could say EU army is a kind of generic term, but it would probably be named something else. Uh, EU military uh, force or something like that. EMF, that would be an interesting one. EMF, e- European military force. So we'll see what they name it, but this is kind of in the works. And to do this, you have to really undermine NATO. And uh, Turkey did the first major move to do that, which was to shoot down a Russian jet uh, intentionally uh, back in uh, October on the border of uh, Syria and Turkey. Uh, 
and uh, that helped to also damage the credibility of NATO as a North Atlantic Treaty Organization, Turkey being a member way down in the Middle East. But this is all part of the transition, okay? Trashing the United Nations, this is also part of it. Right now you have so many corruption scandals, they've allowed Saudi Arabia to absolutely corrupt the United Nations, to buy its way onto the UN Human Rights Council, and to spread money around to people and, uh, and NGOs in order to buy a seat at the table. This is a, 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 the, a theocratic dictatorship who's got lots of cash from oil and are basically attacking and murdering its neighbors in Yemen. This is uh, the head of the Human Rights Commission, I guess, or council in the United Nations. So massive corruption there. This is designed to bring down the UN, just like uh, allowing Germany to run roughshod over uh, Czechoslovakia or Poland was designed also to destroy the League of Nations. So a similar theme. You have to trash the multilateral organization by corrupting it, making it impotent, and then they'll replace it with a new organization. So this is order out of chaos. Create chaos, impose order. This is what I believe they're doing with NATO uh, and the United Nations. So a European military force, some sort of new global governance or government institution down the line uh, to replace the UN or to overhaul the UN. Okay, so that's uh, this is what's going on. So interesting article there by Eric. Uh, so let's move on to the task at hand. Now, people would think, what, why, why, why? Why, why is the UK leadership so obsessed with Syria? Assad must go, Assad must go. Barrel bombs, barrel bombs. He's killed, I don't know, they keep raising the number every few weeks, but I think they'll probably say he's killed half a million of his own people in cold blood, okay? None of these numbers are correct, and most of them are sort of made up, okay? And in some cases, they're just counting every single casualty in Syria and saying that Assad did it, okay? The reality is hundreds, if not billions of dollars have been spent flooding that region with, with guns and terrorist fighters from all around the world to besiege that country, to destabilize it, because uh, they do want regime change. They do want Assad out. Why? Why do they, why do they keep banging on about this? Even after they've been caught red-handed, uh, arming ISIS, supplying al-Qaeda, supplying ISIS, Turkey has en- enabled this war, okay, and Jordan, okay, they got it kick-started. And the U.S. has been backing them. The U.S. is running air cover for ISIS, essentially, and for al-Nusra, claiming their moderate rebels are intermingling with the terrorists, therefore begging Russia and Syria, please don't strike our moderate rebels, even though they're wearing the same clothes and hanging out right there and shooting next to al-Nusra, which is al-Qaeda in Syria. Please don't hit our terrorists. Please, the Russians. They're begging them, right? So basically... This is what's going on. Okay, why? Why the obsession? Even even when you've been to risk being caught red-handed, uh, running a proxy war, which is basically what the U.S. And, and Britain and its allies and Turkey, they've been caught. Okay. Israel even made a dramatic statement. I think this, was from, this is from antiwar.com. Listen to this. In a speech at the uh, uh, Herzliya, Herzliya Conference, Israel's military intelligence chief, Major General 
Herzi Halevi, okay, took Israel's longstanding position that it prefers ISIS over the Syrian government, over Assad. Uh, so, and he took it to a whole other level, declaring that Israel does not want to see ISIS defeated in the war. Okay, Major Halevi expressed concerns about the recent offensive against ISIS territory around Raqqa in Syria, saying that uh, in the last three months, the Islamist group was facing the most difficult situation since its inception uh, and the declaration of the caliphate, okay? A virtual caliphate, not a real caliphate. So Israeli officials have regularly expressed comfort uh, with the idea of ISIS conquering the whole of Syria, in fact, uh, and saying that it will find it preferable to the Iran-allied government uh, surviving the war. That's the Assad regime, okay? So... This is a very revealing statement. What this shows is what Israel's agenda is, okay, and what it's always been. Israel's agenda has always been to topple the government in Damascus, to pare down Syria's military, to deconstruct that state uh, so that it does have no rivals in the region militarily, and it can take land that it needs and wants, uh, including the Golan Heights, including the Sheba Farms, uh, including parts of South Lebanon, okay, and to take take out all of Israel's rivals uh, for its plans, okay. That's number one. And so in that case, they're playing a, a, a kind of a helpful role, if you will. Here's the big agenda, okay. Israel is important, and it's there, okay. We've just identified that. But there's a bigger agenda at play here, and this is what I really want to get into. Why the obsession with regime change in Syria? Why? Okay, it's not just about Iran. Okay. At the same time, look at what's happening at the same time. Turkey is going for EU membership. Turkey is trying to blackmail the EU into accepting it as a member of the EU. Okay, saying that it will halt the migrant siege if they get $3 billion or $4 billion in cash from Brussels uh, and uh, visa-free travel for all Turkish citizens. Now, that's interesting. So this is a, effectively EU, fast-tracking uh, EU membership status for Turkey. Okay. Now, let's just bear in mind, Turkey is one of the main facilitators and the main drivers of the ISIS crisis. All these terrorist Bands setting up camp in Turkey, going over the Turkish-Syrian border and back again multiple times. Supplies, rat lines, oil, black market this, human trafficking that. Okay, U.S. and spooks uh, from all NATO countries uh, hiding under NGO cover or whatever. In some cases, just mercenaries fighting with al-Nusra or ISIS, be they British, French, wherever doesn't matter, special forces even, okay, wearing uh, scarves over their heads or whatever they do. This is what Turkey does. Without Turkey, there would have been no war in Syria. There would have been no ISIS crisis, and we wouldn't probably be talking about this right now. And they want to allow Turkey into the EU. And then we get a report. This was in the, uh, I believe it was the Daily Express, uh, Britain in touch with their embassy in Turkey, by the minute in advance of the Brexit vote, assuring Turkey, 
uh, that's going to do all it can to help it into the EU. So this is the agenda, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, The United States, Britain, the Anglo-American Atlanticist bloc, they want Turkey in the EU. Okay, Why? This will give them the most substantial military footprint capability uh, in history uh, in Turkey. And look where Turkey sets. It shares a border with Syria, Iraq, Iran, Armenia, okay, Georgia. Think about that. That's right on basically when in, in, include the encirclement of Russia uh, on the Eurasian land bridge strategically plus full domination of one of the most important long-running borders over Iran, Iraq, and Syria. This is what Turkey is. Okay, if there is an EU military joint force to, to basically replace NATO, it's going to extend right to Syria, right to Iraq, right to Iran, right to Georgia and Armenia, and essentially right to Russia. Right there. Think about this. Gas pipelines, oil pipelines, energy dominance, supply in the European market for the next 200 years. This can only happen if we have a Western puppet government in Syria and perhaps uh, somehow absorbing Syria into the Turkish fold uh, or into some sort of a European economic zone by proxy. Okay, this is the long-term agenda. This is why it has to happen. This is why they're hell-bent on doing it. This is what the U.S. wants. Because any EU army or EU military force is going to be dominated by the United States uh, economically because defense contracting is what makes up a military force. You might see soldiers. They might have uniforms. They might be flying flags. But at the end of the day, those are Boeing planes, Rolls-Royce engines, Lockheed cruise missiles, Raytheon technology, and, and mostly American defense contractor corporations producing this stuff. Okay. So they will be the dominant player. The United States will be the dominant player in the EU military force eventually. Mergers and acquisitions of all these companies, be they in Germany, be they in Britain, be they in France, and they'll divide up like a, like a good cartel always does. It divides up its market. You get that bit. It's like it's like the Godfather when the when the mafia families get together. I'll do we'll do the heroin and you can run the numbers and you do the prostitution and we'll do the cocaine and we'll do the extortion and we'll we'll handle the casinos and my cousin uh, the the Gambinos or whatever will do that business and they just divide it up. This is what organized crime families do. This is what cartels do. This is what the banks do. They divvy it up amongst a very elite club. This is what happens. This is what this is how the plan will roll out for Eurasia, for greater Europe and Turkey. That's the plan. Now, what schedule this takes, if it happens, will it happen on schedule? Will it, will it go to plan? That's not certain, but it, it is definitely looks like the direction they're going in. Okay? This would mean a major military encampment and presence, more bases, more assets deployed to Turkey on the front lines 
the frontiers of Europe. Every empire needs a frontier. The United States have a, has a frontier in the Pacific. They have all their huge military assets parked on the DMZ between North and South Korea, 30,000 staff, contractors, and military persons in total, if you, if you count it all up, sitting there in the demilitarized zone in Korea, in, in Okinawa, in Japan, big base there, and uh, Guam, and uh, other islands in the South Pacific, in Hawaii, etc. Okay, the Philippines, and maybe more. Okay, those are their assets. That the frontier of the of of the uh, American Empire, in the Pacific, the frontier in the East. They have forty three uh, military installations or presence in Africa. Forty three different countries. They have a big footprint in Iraq. Uh, well, they did anyway. But they, we have central c- command and control in Doha and Qatar. We have a base, a major base in Bahrain. We have assets parked in Saudi Arabia and in Turkey, okay? And also in, in Stuttgart and Germany and all over Europe and Britain too, okay? This is the empire. It's got uh, one, over 1,300 military, maybe some say 3,000 in total if you count all installations globally, okay? So Europe, if Europe is to become a kind of an empire or if a, a big force in the world, it needs a frontier and it needs to be militarized. So right now they're trying to militarize. If you look at the east of Europe, it's being militarized from Poland to the Balt- and through the Baltic states and uh, Czech Republic down through Rom- Romania, Bulgaria. They'd like to do the same with Moldova, <clears throat> Transnistria, Ukraine. Obviously, well, they are kind of militarizing Ukraine. Uh, and so this is guaranteeing uh, permanent encampment forces there. So it needs that. You need the frontier. These are money laundering zones for currency, uh, for big uh, military activities as well, and for hardware. And this is all part of the military industrial economy. Okay. So Turkey would be the ultimate uh, if it was part of Europe, and if Europe had a European, a pan-European military force, uh, then they would be permanently parked there. There would be people deployed there constantly on a rotating basis for the next hundred years, and they'll just keep a low-intensity conflict brewing, instability brewing just enough so they can keep it manageable, but make it viable as a business. And who knows what's next? Uh, absorb uh, Lebanon, Israel into greater Europe, perhaps. I don't know what the master plan is, but I'm sure it's along those lines. Israel already plays in the Euro Cup and, and sport sporting competitions and things like that, so it's already been melded into the European tapestry. Uh, so who knows what's coming down the pipeline. That is what you need to pay attention to. Okay, we'll, we'll, I'm going to try to break that down in greater detail. Uh, and also maybe in written form uh, in the coming weeks uh, if, we, uh, if we're able to sit down and put some of these ideas to paper. But we'll talk about them more too. The agenda is becoming very visible now. Uh, this is kind of a scary time, but also a, a very interesting time because uh, a lot of things are kind of congealing, coming together, uh, and you can see what, what is the main goals 
of those who consider themselves the rightful rulers of their planetary fiefdom, if I could steal a, uh, a term from Ian R. Crane, uh, the rightful rulers of the planetary fiefdom. That is an agenda which is becoming more and more visible uh, by the day, and that's why we'll be here, hopefully, to share that with you and our insights uh, here on the QT at 21wire.tv. And uh, check us out also uh, on Sundays, the Sunday Wire will broadcast live, still free and accessible to everybody uh, every Sunday, and we'll have great guests, and uh, we'll break down uh, with our team at ACR great programming uh, on Sundays as well. Also for members, uh, the newsletter will be out regularly. Uh, The first newsletter will be out in a couple of days or so, and that will be fortnightly as well. We'll be on schedule hopefully this week. So uh, some really interesting stuff. So special program Insight co-produced with UK CTV here in Britain, The Battle for Eurasia, first episode, members only at 21wire.tv. Thank you for your support. And, uh, and for new members who just came on this week, uh, great to have you on board. And uh, tell your friends, uh, we need your help to keep this going, to do this work, um, to provide everything from the website uh, to articles, to people who are helping us with editing. Uh, we need your help uh, to make that a reality. And future projects as well will all be basically funded in part by your support, uh, whatever you can give us every month. Um, that's you making that happen. So we really appreciate it. I'm Patrick Henningsen. This is on the QT at 21wire.tv. <laughs>